A podcast listener named Stacy, I won't say her last name because she didn't give me permission, sent a question in. She wants to know why Thanksgiving Day editions of The Plain Dealer are already on the street. Now, we're crossing streams here, the print edition, the auto edition. If somebody sends me something on subtext, I fear a big marshmallow man may arise. We'll answer that question on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with my colleagues, Jane Cahoon, Laura Johnston, and Chris Wernowski. And I bet you didn't all know that the Thanksgiving edition of the newspaper has hit the streets already. I <laughs> no, did not. I okay. I'm just trying so, to get past the marshmallow thing. I was talking about. <laughs> yeah, good reference. Uh, it's the Ghostbusters reference, crossing the streams. Okay. So, so Stacy, everybody knows that the news business has been doing a lot more with a lot less because of our financial fortunes. The Thanksgiving paper is the biggest of the year, and we actually give a version of it away to hundreds of thousands of people who don't subscribe. They get all the ads and they get a collection of different kinds of stories. It's not actually the Thursday paper. It contains all sorts of good Thanksgiving tips, including our recent game board uh, edition where we explain all the best game boards to play and the game that me and my colleague Mark Bosberg created, Crooks. Check it out. They're on Cleveland.com too. So that is the, the version of the paper that went out. There's nothing new in it except for Layla Atassi's Thanksgiving column those 200,000 people get to see that before the rest of our readers. We will have a second special Thanksgiving edition hit the streets in outlying counties tomorrow for people who buy it at the newsstands there. And then Thursday, a whole lot of people will have it delivered. That's the story behind it. Hey, I, I do think, though, this this does raise a question. We don't really give people a chance to send us feedback on this podcast. Maybe every day we should start it off by saying, hey, the email is cquinn at cleveland.com. Send us a question. We'd be happy to answer it. I was it. just going to say, what's your personal cell phone? <laughs> <laughs> we can use the email, Jane Cahoon. Okay, let's begin. What was the message Monday from Ohio's hospital leaders during Governor Mike DeWine's special coronavirus briefing? Jane Cahoon, we were not expecting Mike DeWine to have a briefing Monday, but the coronavirus is so out of control, he apparently feels the need. He had the doctors on two weeks ago, and they said, we're okay, things are getting dicey, we're running out of staff. Yesterday, it was a bit more dire. Yeah, it w- it was more urgent, that's for sure. They They really tried to convey how stressed the hospitals are are starting to become as they see these coronavirus case numbers just shooting up exponentially. And they know that when they see those numbers of cases reported, that those are going to turn into, a lot of them anyway, will turn into hospitalizations within a couple of weeks. And then some of those people are going to need extra care and in intensive care. And then Sadly, some of them are, are going to end up dying, but they're, they're particularly worried about Thanksgiving, of course, when, when a lot of people are just going to ignore the recommendations and mingle with each other. And, and so they are really worried. I mean, the, their message basically was, you know, we, we can make room for the patients, but we're running out of nurses and doctors and other staff, uh, these caregivers to take care of them because they're getting sick they're, and they're overworked and they're, and they're burned out. You know, just as an example, the the Cleveland Clinic has 970 caregivers not working because they're either infected with COVID or they've been to, exposed to it and they have to quarantine. Uh, so the hospitals have been doing things like transferring patients among themselves, you know, to get them the level of care that they need. And they've also been doing some transferring of things like ventilators and high flow oxygen equipment, although, you know, they don't. They haven't run out of those, but they they've had to do 
you know, some shifting around. And uh, on Monday, we had 11,885 new cases, another record. I think the highest before that was like 8,800. Right, 3,000 more. Yeah. Yeah. Although DeWine made clear that those high numbers, part of that is a backlog of tests finally making it into the state's numbers. Um, But they also reported 4,358 patients hospitalized with COVID, and that's up from 2,748 just on November 10th. So one of the doctors that um, said, "It's, it's not that we're planning for the surge, the surge is here. You know, I in Ohio, the the nonprofit journalism outfit in Ohio that does investigative work has been fighting with the state to get the health department to get a bunch of data on hospitals. And they finally got it yesterday. It's three weeks old. But when Rich Exner took a look at it, he said the thing that struck him is how much the hospitals are transferring patients back and forth to keep their capacities pretty much even that there's a lot of cooperation going on. You look at those capacities and there is room, but it wouldn't take much for us to be out of room and then having people not get treated. Look, It seemed like the message yesterday was, please, please, please stay home. Don't travel on Thanksgiving. Do all the things you've been advised to do to help our staff. I mean, there was even the message on the religious side, the one the one person who's a, a, said I'm a, a person of faith and and I take my my religious message is to to listen to the science and do right by your neighbors because there right. are people out there saying you know I'm going to let God take care of it. Uh, it, it, <laughs> I mean, it seemed like a real plea by a bunch of these folks that you know this is not a coming crisis; it's a crisis right now, and we right. need your help. The part that I I really found scary when I started thinking about it some more was. Can you imagine like getting COVID and then getting sick enough to where you have to go to the hospital or an ICU and there's, there's no one to take care of you. I mean, you can get a bed, but you know, they just can't give you the care you need. And, and, you know, you're already isolated when, when you're sick with the coronavirus. And I just, I just find the whole prospect really, really frightening. And I wonder if people will take that to heart. Yeah, I, I mean, I salute the governor for trying to get the message out again. I mean, he's been very diligent in trying to push this. He was stunned, it seemed, when he heard about the 900-plus Cleveland Clinic people who were either had COVID or out of work because they'd been exposed to it. That's only going to get worse as this thing spreads and come post-Thanksgiving, who knows what's going to happen. Chris, you said you saw something floating around on the web last night about how many flights have been added because it seems that a lot of people are traveling. Chris Warnowski. Yeah, there, there, there is a uh, a gif going around on Twitter that somebody put up that is that shows it's a graphical representation of how many flights are in the air, and it's it's sort of grown over the week to kind, of, and it looks like a contagion map. I, I mean, it just looks really. Ta- I mean, I looked at it, and I was just like, oh gosh, this is this is this does not bode well for America. You know, the first two weeks of December are going to be hell, which is what the message of the doctors was. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What is the latest decision of the Cuyahoga County Board of Health to deprive residents of important coronavirus information? Laura Johnson, we talked about this a little bit last week, but then we reporter Courtney Stolfi dove into it. And it is mind boggling that this bungling board at the height of the plague has decided to provide less information. Why are they doing that? 
Yeah, this is one of those things that just makes you go, huh, because this is a public board uh, for the government and the board decided to pivot from providing the public with day old information about the number of coronavirus cases to six day old information. They say they made it because they can't do two things at once, uh, simultaneously reporting flu cases and COVID cases so that this less transparent reporting practice will allow them to do both so they can keep track of it. Um it's not really that helpful when you have a surge that you were trying to stay on top of. So they're still reporting numbers on Fridays. They're from the previous Saturday. And according to officials, this is a standard system used by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. You know, we, we keep talking about how they're using the 1918 manual because they haven't been updated and it's a really antiquated system at county health boards. But I'm starting to think that there's something wrong with the manual. That, like, you know, when you get a manual and it has like green check marks over things you're supposed to do and red X's on what you're not supposed to do. I'm thinking theirs is backwards. And they're doing all the things you're not supposed to do. Like, let's keep the public in the dark about the most important health problem to come up in 100 years. Just don't get these people. We, we talk about it and talk about it. They're not accountable to the public. They're not elected. It's very hard to to dent their failure to be transparent. This one, though, really stretches credulity. Here we are in the worst part of this. It's going to get worse for the next two months. They're giving us less information. I guess we're going to have to uh, get our lawyers involved or something because this can't stand. I mean, they've got to provide information in a timely manner. I think they've realized that this is a bad move because they say they're developing this more comprehensive dashboard that's going to allow for more timely reporting of both coronavirus and flu cases. But they're like, look for that sometime in the first three months of 2021. So you're like, <laughs> okay, by the time we have a vaccine, we might be able to keep track of these cases. Uh, and they point to the state, which does provide zip code information at a much quicker turnaround. But if you've looked on that state site, it's not super easy to use, which is shocking, right? Right? And but, it doesn't have county level com- um, information like cases among people with pre-existing conditions or healthcare workers. But if if that's the answer that you should go to the state, then how about the state runs the whole thing and we get rid of all these local health boards that don't know what they're doing? We talked yesterday about how the city has hemorrhaged its epidemiologists and they're they were overwhelmed last week and couldn't keep up with the numbers. Now these guys are saying it's not convenient for us to share information with you, even though we're supposed to serve you. What's the point? We should just get rid of them. We keep talking about how this crisis is pointed out the need for serious reform of public health delivery. Although Chris Wernowski, we talked before the podcast, nobody seems to be talking about that. Yeah. It just, it feels like, I mean, you should be able to do two things, you know, (laughs) and, 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 you know, you're, you're, what are we nine months, 10 months into this pandemic and, and you didn't see flu season coming. I just, it, it, it seems to me that there is just a, I don't know, a brain drain. Like, I, I don't know if that's the right thing that I'm the right term that I'm looking for. It just seems like, you know, there are people in these positions that that probably weren't the right people to handle this kind of crisis. And, and you know, I, I think the county, I think the city would do well to find people who are smart, young and intelligent and who are capable of, of working long hours and addressing these big systemic problems we have in our health systems, or we should get rid of these health boards. I'm starting to come around to your notion that, that these things might 
have outlived their usefulness because I don't, I mean, what, what good are they in this situation? Like, you know, every person I know who's had to call either the city health department or the county health department for something during this pandemic has not had a good story. to <laughs> Well, period. and the fact and, that there are separate city and county health department boards so that like when Courtney reports these numbers, she has to say, well, this is suburban Cuyahoga County. You have to look at Cleveland for separate ones. I mean, no one thinks about a virus in terms of where the like, city line is. I, I think they probably have a great team of people to put out a pamphlet on the flu once a year <laughs> in normal times. But but this is a crisis. And, you know, this isn't a time to park your, you know, one of Armin Budish's buddies in, a, you know, a, a, a position that, you know, in a normal year would not, you know, involve a lot of scrutiny. But, you know, we're past the point of crisis here. And, and, you know, our county and, and our citizens deserve people in these positions that are, are capable of doing the work and, and willing to do the work. And I, and I get it. It's probably not, you know, I mean, if you're an epidemiologist, my guess is there's probably greener pastures to work in than Cleveland, Ohio, but, but the city, I mean, they need to be competitive and they need to bring in the right people. Otherwise, I mean, it just, this, this, this story is just outrageous. And- right. And, and it's not just that. It's the whole philosophy. They need to remember this is service. You are serving the people who pay your salaries. It's not about some fiefdom where you just issue unilateral rules. This is what is the public need? The public needs information. The public needs to know how bad this is getting day by day by day. And to, to do what they did, it's just, it's, well, it's really shameful. The public needs to pay attention to county government and the county needs to vote every one of these people out of these, you know, the, from the board to, to Budish, you know, we, I think we need kind of a clean slate here because I, I just could, you're right, Chris Budish could be pressuring them to, and saying, come on guys, this is not what, what government's about. You're supposed to be transparent. All right. We got to move on. It's this week in the CLE. We keep being told that small gatherings have caused the fall coronavirus surge. We blew past the Ohio record by more than 3,000 cases just Monday. But is that really the cause? Chris Wernowski, my favorite story of the week. I've been throwing the flag on this for a month. I never bought that it's small gatherings. And the New York Times did a story that says, guess what? It's right. not. Right. So uh, the Times had a story, a really interesting story yesterday that said, that while household gatherings do contribute to community spread of the virus, numerous epidemiologists that they interviewed said that there's little evidence to suggest that those household gatherings are the main source of this sharp rise in increased cases of the virus that we've seen over in recent weeks. But to hear government officials talk about it, it, it you know, they're ringing a much different bell saying that you know, we're seeing spread and at, you know, family cookouts and, and, you know, people gathering to watch the Browns games and this stuff. And, and while the, the time story and the people that they interviewed aren't discounting that those can be vectors, they're saying those aren't the big ones that we're sort of, uh, we should be focusing on what in the States where they have available data, which again, is probably not Ohio. They looked at, Exposure that led to new infections and found that places like long-term care facilities like nursing homes, food processing plants, prisons, healthcare settings, 
restaurants and bars are the leading sources of spread, which, you know, common sense would dictate, yes, all of these congregate places are are probably more dangerous than having your uncle over to watch the Browns win a football game. (laughs) But what bothers me about this is that the governor has, has stood in front of us twice a week for a long time saying it's the small gatherings. Mm -hmm. The whole curfew is aimed at small gatherings that take place after the bars close. And, and every time he said it, we would point out they have no data to show that because they've done a very poor job of trying to get that data. And we suspect that it's because they don't want to know the answer that it is bars and restaurants and that it is a bunch of places that they should be closing down if that's the case. So, so I, it, this just points out that we pretty much have been bamboozled for a month with no data to back it up. And what they said was wrong. Well, but think about it. I mean, early on, we had that issue with our prisons here that, you know, our prison became one like one of our prisons was the hot spot in the country for a long time. And we we kind of stopped talking about that. We stopped talking. You know, I mean, we talk a lot. We talk about nursing homes a little bit, but, you know, you know, a lot of nursing homes are, are owned by companies that aren't being forthcoming about what's happening inside their buildings. And and so you know, there there are many layers of, I, I don't want to say deception here, but a lot of willful avoiding the reality of it. They're not really looking at the real problem. And I and 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 part of you know what what's also frustrating is that it's always laid out in these very binary terms of, well, it's either one of these things or the other. It's either small gatherings or it's it's, it's like, no, we're beyond the point of it being able to be blamed on one thing. It's everywhere. You know, look at that red and purple map that we have now. There's not a corner of this state that hasn't been touched by this. But the the problem with giving people misinformation, we talked about this in a previous segment about the county health board, where they're withholding information, is it breeds distrust. I should have mentioned in the county health board discussion, when they recommended the stay-at-home advisory last week, there were school districts that sent out memos saying, we can't trust the health department, they're all over the place. By telling people for a month or more, that small gatherings are to blame for the, the big spread, the big surge. And, and then actual facts come out from other places, not from Ohio, that say, no, that's not really true. That leads you to, to not believe what you're being told all through this. And, and that's the worst thing for the pandemic. If people know the truth, know the facts, or given evidence of it, Mm-hmm. They'll probably do the right thing, most of them. I don't know. I, I just I find it very difficult to believe that in an age where every one of us walks around with a supercomputer that is a marvel of technology in our pockets, that that at, that we are so limited in our ability to to understand where this is happening and how it is happening. And and I come back. I had a conversation with somebody the other day, and I said, I just. I really don't think people truly appreciate yet just how how our government from the president on down to like our city council has just failed at every conceivable level of addressing this issue. And it's sad. You know, it 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 pulled back the curtain on how antiquated and and you know, poorly run and all the nepotism and all the rampant you know, just mismanagement of our government and these systems that are supposed to be there to protect us 
when stuff like this happens. And, and, and honestly, at the end of this, there should be a reckoning because I, I think we've all been lied to. We've all been misled. I, and, and. Well, this is part of the reckoning. We're yeah. throwing it out there. Laura Johnson, did you have something you want to say? I did want to, I'm, I read about, you know, how on your phone, you can turn on coronavirus notifications actually. Not and like, Ohio. I went through the thing and like, was like, what state do you live in? It's like, Ohio. I was like, yeah, they're not available here. So some states are going forward and and they have this data and like we live in ohio where it's like well I, good luck you've got some like yeah, masking there, tape there, there <laughs> some privacy concerns about that but the, the general idea behind that is is if you are through location tracking they can say if you've been exposed to somebody but but you can't do it in ohio maybe maybe we should classify our public health system as a failing nuclear power plant and maybe our legislature at the very beginning we had not been putting money into into public health for decades and it's like okay this is what you get yeah you're listening to this week in the cle before the Trump administration finally said that they'll start the transition to the presidency of Joe Biden. Did Ohio's Republican U.S. Senator Rob Portman take what we could call a bold stand on that decision? Or am I overstating it? Jane Cahoon, what do we say? Was was Rob Portman bold yesterday or kind of sort of? Kind of, sort of. I'm going to go out there on a limb and say, I think, yeah, that might be an overstatement. He wrote an op-ed in the Cincinnati Inquirer Monday morning saying that the transition should formally proceed, which is, I think, maybe a half step further than he went last week when he said that Joe Biden should be getting national security briefings. And we wrote a story about that last week. Um, But for some reason, when he wrote this op-ed, he seemed to get more national media play play for it. But as I said, I didn't think it was a big leap. And uh, as you mentioned, Chris, later in the day, the dam broke after the Michigan results were certified and and the GSA authorized the, the transition to, to move forward. But um, in this op-ed, Portman also repeated what he had said last week about there not being any significant fraud in the election or evidence of that that would change the results at this point. Um, so, uh, he, but he still didn't refer to Joe Biden as the president-elect. So he, here's how he put it. I'll just give you his quote. This is only prudent. Donald Trump is our president until January 20th, 2021. But in the likely event that Joe Biden becomes our next president, it is in the national interest that the transition is seamless and that America is ready on day one of a new administration for the challenges we face. So do you think so that's bold? So, no, I don't think it's bold at all. So my question is, do you think he knew? Republicans were coming out of the woodwork yesterday to say, let's move on. Let's get to the transition. This is silly. A bunch of business people came out and said, we're not going to contribute to the Georgia campaign if you don't get moving. So did the word go out to all these Republicans? Hey, it's okay to say something now because tonight (laughs) we're going to do the transition. It does make you wonder because we've talked about this before where where Portman rarely goes out there by himself and and says something like that. He kind of like waits for the the bit of a groundswell, you know, to um, and then he gets out there. So uh, could that be? Sure. I think it's a chicken or the egg. I mean, the, the Republicans could have finally started having some spine to say, come on, we got to move on now. You know, when Michigan did certify the results, which was kind of the final nail or 
or they all got cover. Go ahead and say it. We'll make it look good later tonight. When we send the letter. <laughs> he did make a point of saying um, that the Trump's legal challenges should be dealt with expeditiously. He didn't say. Um, they have been. They've cut been it slam out. Slam dunk. This is <laughs> complete and utter horse cookie. Anyway, okay. This week in the CLE. What is the COVID-19 robot that a Solon company has created and what does it cost? Laura Johnson, this was an interesting COVID-19 story that Pete Cross put together. I didn't know about it. What is it? So it's like a robotic vacuum and it's called a move. I think I'm pronouncing this right, but it's M then U-V-E. So with the U-V capitalized. Um, so it uses U-V light to sanitize things to like to get rid of the coronavirus. Uh, the first deliveries of this device are not expected until February, though, and we're looking at about $45,000. Um, but uh, so you probably won't be buying one, you know, for each level of your house. I guess it looks like a hot water heater on wheels. And um, they say it's going to be about 90.99.9% effective uh, to get rid of surface pathogens, although obviously we don't have any uh, proof for that claim. So it just rolls around? Shining the the UV light on surfaces and and vacuuming up whatever it finds. That's what it does. Yeah, like it's supposed to shine the light and and sanitize things. They're they're marketing to hospitals, car dealers, restaurants, anywhere where people are coming from outside and congregating in a space. Interesting. Okay, so this week in the CLE. What is the coronavirus relief that Cuyahoga County judges provided to residents on Monday? Chris Ranaski, this is kind of important because this involves something that gives residents no choice if it goes the other way and would put them into danger. So what did they do that actually takes care of the residents? Right. So judges on Monday voted to postpone all jury trials until at least January 19th as the latest surge continues to spread throughout the state. Um, in early November, the judges voted to suspended uh, trials until December 1st and plan to reassess uh, whether to resume trials as that date neared. But, you know, they they from November 16th to Sunday, 23 people who work in the Justice Center, the old courthouse or the juvenile Justice Center have tested positive for the virus. So, you know, that coupled with everything that we see in the news with these these new daily numbers just kind of exploding. Uh, it led the judges to make um, what many would argue would be the right decision to 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 delay these trials uh, again until after the so first let, of the year. So let me ask you a question that you may not be able to answer. But sure. but if I'm charged <laughs> with a felony, mm -hmm. I have a right to a jury trial and I have mm -hmm. a right to a speedy trial. So if I'm in jail because they won't let me out, and I insist on my right to a speedy trial and I want a trial by jury, not by judge. What are they doing? Are they letting me out in the interim? No, they aren't. I mean, they're they're claiming that they're taking care of people in the jail. And I think that that is, you know, what is I think what's scary is is that and this has not happened here yet, but it is happening in parts of the country where people who have not had their day in court are dying in jail. And that is, you know, what people are pointing to is a is a very huge failure of our bail system, which is is, you know, I mean, you sh you know, somebody who is not convicted of, of a crime. Look, nobody should die in prison of, of the coronavirus. But, you know, somebody who isn't convicted of a crime, but is stuck in a jail because they can't make bail. 
that's unacceptable. Right, but let me, it, it, but let, but let me bring you, let me bring you back to it though. Mm-hmm. I I have a right to have a speedy trial if I'm charged with a crime and I say I didn't do it, and and I I get a jury trial. If they can't give me a jury trial till January, and I've been in longer than the term of the speedy trial, do they have to let me go? I don't know. I, I you know, this is, I mean, that's something that I'll have Corey maybe look into, Corey Schaefer, but it, I, I would imagine that they're going to have to address this at some point, that there is going to be some attorney who says, you know, we're owed a speedy trial. But yeah. but then again, you know, defense attorneys do a lot of things to postpone trials. So, you know, to to sort of hold off the inevitable for for some of their defendants. So, you know, and 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 honestly, I mean, a lot of cases plead out before they do go to trial. So um, but for those that do go to trial, the serious ones like homicides, um, you know, it is it is something that we should probably explore. It's interesting. OK, you're listening this week in the CLE. Good discussion, everybody. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE. And thank you, Stacy, for the question about the plane dealer. We'll be back with an episode tomorrow.